What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I'm no girl. I'm a woman. Do you hear me? I'm not your wife or your mother or even your mistress. What? Mm -mm. I am your employee, and as such, I expect to be treated equally, with a little dignity and a little respect. What do you mean, mistress? Never mind, she's just a little upset. Dorley, just come off it, for God's sake. The whole company knows you two are having an affair. Who's been saying we're having an affair? Who's been saying it? He has. Hey, all, and welcome to a new episode of Represent. I'm your host, Aisha Harris, and thank you again for tuning in. That clip you just heard at the top of the show is of the incomparable Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton, who, alongside Jane Fonda, starred in the classic workplace comedy 9 to 5. For today's installment, I spoke via phone with the writer of that movie, Patricia Resnick, about what it was like for her as a woman to work in Hollywood in the 70s and 80s and her perspective on ageism and sexism within the industry. She has very strong feelings about the new Oscar membership rules, for instance. And of course, we'll chat about the legacy of one of the most beloved and celebrated feminist comedies of all time. If you haven't seen 9 to 5 yet, well, first, you need to fix that. It stars Parton, Tomlin, and Fonda as three women who, fed up with their wildly misogynistic workplace environment, fantasize about murdering their gross boss, Mr. Hart. Unfortunately, the movie's still very relevant in many ways because Trump... But it's also very smart, funny, and the performances are everything. So to kick off our conversation, Patricia spoke to me a bit about how she got into writing in the first place and how she wound up beginning her career working with legendary filmmaker Robert Altman. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to the show, Patricia. It's so great to have you on today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I would love to just jump right in and ask you, do you recall at all what your first script was that you wrote, your first full script? I think the very first thing I wrote was a little piece about my grandmother had come from Austria to this country during World War One when she was in her teens, along with her mother and I think three or four of her siblings. And her mother was trying to move all these children through the battlefields of World War I by herself. And my grandmother had told me kind of a harrowing story about 
running to get well water. And I think the first thing I wrote was that. Wow. Uh, not a comedy. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure that was... That was the first thing I worked on. That sort of narrative seems to foreshadow the kinds of narratives that I see throughout the rest of your work, a sort of woman-focused narrative and a very empowering one, it sounds like. That's actually true, and I honestly never really, I never really thought about that. But I, I, I guess as much of my work has ranged, because my career almost falls into two halves, the feature half, which was mm-hmm. comedy, and then the TV half has been primarily drama. But you're right, a lot of it is women-focused with an attempt to, to find empowering characters for women. And your first and, I believe, uncredited role as a screenwriter or co-screenwriter was on Robert Altman's Three Women, correct? I actually, I wrote the treatment for it. Got it. That got it financed, and then the deal was... I was already working for Altman right out of college, and, the, and, the, and I wanted to write, and the deal was that if it got financed, that he would have me write the script. But then he decided not to really have a script, just to have the actors kind of improv mm-hmm. off the treatment. But then he did have me come back about a year later, and I got my first credit on a movie called The Wedding, which I co-wrote with two other writers and Altman. And what what was it like working with Altman? What what is the one or maybe a couple of the the biggest things you learned because he is obviously such a revered filmmaker and t- to start off your career like that is pretty impressive. You know, it was it was amazing working for him. He was kind of my idol and my hero and the main things I learned from him one, one thing that that I'll I'll never forget and that I've definitely used along the way is he would start every movie by pulling together the cast and the crew. And he would basically tell everybody that he was open to suggestions from anyone about anything. If somebody had a good idea, it didn't matter if you were craft service and you had an idea for a scene or you were a writer and you had an idea about, you know, the trailers, it didn't matter what it was um, that you could suggest it to him. And he only reserved, two rights. One was to say no, and the other one was to not have to explain it in the moment. Mm -hmm. But it gave everybody a sense of um, ownership over the film and an incredible amount of camaraderie. I always say working for him was like going to summer camp for adults. Mm. It was an amazing experience. And just watching him, um, you know, watching him shoot and stage and where he put the camera and all of that, uh, I, I learned an, an incredible amount. That's that's rare, right, for a director to bring on to be open to having the writer on set, or is or is that fairly common? It seems no. It's real. It's in 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 television. It's it's very common, right? Because in television, the you know the the creators are the writer. You know, is, is a writer generally and. Um, the directors are kind of for hire, whereas in film, it's the other way around. And a lot of directors do not want the writer on the set because um, I think they're afraid of a division of power or the actors going to the writer instead of to them. But Altman always, always had the writer on the set. Mm. And so I got, I just got an unbelievable early education. Yeah. And your your next, or I guess your biggest 
film to date that you've written is obviously Nine to Five, which yep. I recently, well, not recently, I watched it about a year ago because I actually wound up, uh, I interviewed Lily Tomlin, who is amazing. And yes, she is. She, and then to prep for it, I, I watched the movie and it was my first time seeing it. And I absolutely loved it, I thought. And I also thought it was very, you know, very radical for, for the time and also just still so relevant to now. And in that movie, for those listeners who somehow haven't seen it yet, it is a movie about three women, Judy, who's played by Jane Fonda, Violet, played by Lily Tomlin, and Dorley, who is played by Dolly Parton. And these three women are working in a a business or in a company, and it's all about them. Part of the movie is them fantasizing about (laughs) um, killing their boss, Mr. Hart, who is as misogynistic and sexist and piggish as you could possibly imagine. And and Violet gets passed over for a promotion. I've got five years seniority over him. I know that. For Christ's sake, I trained him. I know that. But see, the the company... Oh, the company bullshit. It's your decision. You promoted him. You tell me why. Look, my hands are tied here. The company needs a man in this position. Clients would rather deal with men when it comes to figures. Oh, now we're getting at it. I lose a promotion because of some idiot prejudice. The boys in the club are threatened, and you're so intimidated by any woman that won't sit at the back of the bus. Spare me the women's lib crap, okay? It's just a really funny kind of dark comedy, and you wrote the the script, and I would love to hear a bit about how you got involved. I know it was Jane Fonda's initial idea, as far as I know. Yeah. I, you know, I had worked for Altman for a number of years, written a couple of movies for him, and then I had gone out on my own, and I had done a play for PBS called Ladies in Waiting, and I, you know, kind of was looking for the next project. And I read in the trades that Jane Fonda wanted to do a movie about secretaries with Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton. And Lily, as I said, I I knew, um, and she'd given me my first writing job, and we we were close. And Dolly, I knew a little bit because I used to write some sketches for Cher would do a special every year. Mm -hmm. And I usually would write a, they'd bring me in to do a sketch for Cher and whoever the special guest star was and one year it was Dolly so I had done a a piece for the two of them and you know had spent a little bit of time with her and so I decided that um, I was the perfect person for this contacted my agent there was no writer Jane you know read um, read a script of mine had me come in and she basically wanted to make a political statement about clerical workers she was involved with an organization that was involved in trying to empower women in the office. And she gave me piles and stacks of paper with lots of figures and um, asked me to go off and see if I could think of a story. And she wanted a comedy because she felt that uh, you can make a message more palatable to people if you cloak it a little bit in, in some fun. So, I came up with the idea of the three secretaries who wanted to kill their boss, and we went from there. Yeah, and do you do you agree that the movie, or this movie in particular, could have only worked as a comedy? I don't think it could have only worked as a comedy. I mean, if you look at something, and I, I can't remember exactly when Norma Ray came out mm-hmm. or when Silkwood came out or, or even another movie of Jane's China Syndrome, which, you know, talked about, you know, problem with radiation and, and nuclear 
nuclear weapons. So you, you definitely can make political statements without comedy, but Jane just felt that she wanted it to be a comedy, and I, you know, I think it was a good way to go. And what it did was it gave us a much, much broader audience. You know, so many people feel that there is an authoritative voice in their life, somebody that has power over you, whether you're a kid and it's a teacher, it's a parent, it's the government. So we ended up appealing to, to much more than, than women, which I think might have been partially by virtue of it being a comedy. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the fact that it was a comedy makes it easier to, to swallow. And I think it makes it's made such a big impression because of that. But I also mm-hmm. think it's funny because so often we talk about how women can't be funny. And obviously the way it's written and also the performances by Jane and Lily and Dolly are just really, really hilarious. So it, it sort of just kind of pushes against, I think, that notion in a, in, a, in a really great way. Hopefully, even though things haven't changed in the office quite as much as we'd like, hopefully in the in the world of, you know, Amy Schumer and Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and Liz McCarthy we're, and Kristen Wiig. And, you know, I, I hope we're past that. Um, we're past the notion about women not being able to be, to be funny. And did you incorporate any personal experiences into your writing of, of, of the film? I know Jane had a bunch of, she did a lot of research, but did you bring any of your own uh, ideas and, and experiences to it? I had never worked as a secretary. I had worked I had worked on and off for two years as a waitress, mm-hmm. which is another job where uh, very often one is demeaned by males. What I did was um, 20th Century Fox was a producing studio, and I went to their insurance company, which was just a, I don't even remember what company it was, but it was just a big, really big corporate setting um, in downtown LA. And I went in for about two weeks all day, every day, and befriended uh, a lot of the secretaries and got their stories. And a lot of what's in there is from that, the whole, the whole notion of the secretary that the other secretaries think is sleeping with the boss, and but she isn't. Um, came from came from that experience as well as uh, a myriad of other things. And I I know as a writer in film you don't always get the final say in what happens. And I'm curious as to did the did the movie come out the way you envisioned it? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, saying that as a feature writer you don't get the final say is is like saying it so mildly and and, and nicely. Um, <laughs> Really, in, in features, you know, in, in, unless you're, you're a writer-director, and I think it's why so many writers um, become directors to try to protect their vision, um, you have absolutely no say over what happens because screenplays go under a different copyright than, let's say, books or plays. Um, books or plays, the writer owns copyright, and they can't change them without asking you. Mm. And uh, television and movies are, are something called work for hire. And that means even if I sit home and write something on spec, which means speculation, I make it up, I write the whole thing, and I sell it, legally, the network or the studio becomes the author. And therefore, they can replace you, they can change anything they want. And so what happened on 9 to 5 was we had a very small window of when we could get those three women together to film it. So they finally, there there was a writer-director 
who very much wanted to do the film and he was kind of campaigning for it. And when we couldn't get people that Jane wanted, like Sidney Pollack and, you know, the top of the top people that she had a history of working with, they ended up giving the film um, to him. And he's, you know, he was an excellent writer. He, he had done um, Silver Streak and Foul Play, I think at the time. And, um, he basically called me in and said, look, you know, I'm a writer. I don't really write with other writers. And so I have to, you know, I have to make it my own. And so the biggest difference was it was a much darker comedy, um, in my version. So rather than having fantasies about trying to kill the boss, they actually tried to kill the boss Mm. in, in funny ways. And, um, he was much more sort of, he liked cartoons and kind of broader comedy. And so the, the tone changed a bit. It lightened up a little bit. And that was that. Huh. So the male director didn't want them to actually try to kill the boss. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. I mean, maybe I'm re- reading a lot into it, but uh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Did you have any desires to direct it yourself or did you ask to direct it yourself? Uh, no. Oh, my gosh. I mean, at that point, I was... 26 when I wrote it, I was a female. Um, they, I wouldn't even have thought of asking. Hmm. Um, but after it came out and it was so successful, uh, I, I did want to direct it. I had directed in, in film school. And um, I tried for years to attach myself to various things. And there was just, there was no way that was going to happen. And finally, um, when I was in my, uh, I think I was about 40, and I was pregnant with my first child, and I got a chance to direct a short film for Showtime, which actually did win a number of awards. Um, and the door just started to crack the littlest bit, um, and I just realized at that point, you know, being a single mother with a baby, it was not the best time to be working on my directing career. And since then, honestly, the, my ambition to do that has, has, has diminished somewhat. I'm kind of more interested in running my own show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at this, uh, right now is the, a great time to be a TV showrunner. If, I mean, if, especially if you're a woman, you look at people like Jill Soloway, who, who is the showrunner of Transparent and Shonda Rhimes. Yeah. It's, yeah, it, it definitely seems like now is the time to do it. And do you, I mean, do you think part of the reason why you, or the main reason why you had trouble getting in the door in the first place is because you're a woman? Like, what kind of obstacles, if any, did you did, did you explicitly face while, while in the 80s and throughout? You know, I think it definitely stopped me from directing. As far as being a writer, I, I, I feel like, you know, there was nothing explicit and I never felt like it really hurt me. That being said, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. So when you're a writer and you go in for a job or you try to sell something and it's turned down, you have no idea why. I mean, it could be the material, you know, it could be, it could be a zillion things. I, I definitely know that it's much easier for men to get hired to write shows about women than vice versa. I mean, if I went in and tried to, if I tried to have Ryan Murphy's, um, you know, some of Ryan Murphy's career Mm -hmm. and do things like... American Horror um, Story. 
American Horror Story, and I was just thinking of the Scream Queens. Oh, yeah. You know, if I tried to do some version of that, you know, or, 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 you know, Robert Harlan doing Steel Magnolias, if I tried to do a whole male cast, that would be really questioned. Yeah. And it just isn't the other way around. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's very, that's interesting. I'm trying to think of what women, I mean, the only one I can think of right now is someone like um, Catherine, Catherine Bigelow, who has directed male centered films in the past and and no one seems to really question that but she seems like an outlier really well she is i mean yeah i mean she's won one award right one biggie and yeah um and she still you don't you don't see a ton of work from her right Um, no no not at all and it's funny because there's a recent study that came out last week and in that study it's from the university of southern california's annenberg school And that study revealed that, obviously, it's not a big surprise, but of the top 100 films that came out last year in 2015, there were hardly any, for for anyone who wasn't a white male, there there were hardly any positions to look at. There were women made up only 31.4% of the speaking characters in the top 100 films, 7.5% of directors, 11.8% of writers, and only 22% of producers. And so when they tell you, well, when something comes up that's more female-centered, that significantly lowers your chances of you even being called Uh, in. Yes, absolutely. And that actually, that leads to, that was my argument about um, everything that's going on with with the Academy right now and the Oscars So White campaign, and and my feeling is, I mean, the Academy is just the tail on the dog. You, you have to work on the studios, you know, and this, the studios need to be coming up with, you know, more roles for women and more roles for people of color and more roles for Asians and more job positions. And and then you'll you'll see a difference. You know, the academy's just picking from what's being offered. And I think right now, not that the numbers in terms of writing and directing um, are good in TV, but at least the rooms that I've been in, um, the the writers' rooms that I've been in have been very balanced in terms of male and female. And I feel like there's. Um, if, if you look at television, particularly cable, there's there are a number of female voices being heard, um, definitely more female characters, and I think they're striving more, you know, they're striving more for diversity. I, I also think the idea of what what diversity is means to be brought in, because honestly, just being a female at this point is diverse. Your sexual orientation is not considered. I mean, I feel as a lesbian, that makes me diverse as, you know, any and any other diversity because it means I'm in a minority and I have a different worldview. But we have a lot, of, a lot, a lot of work to do to um, get past sort of the middle class white male view of the world. Yeah, for sure. And you you elaborated on this point around the time of Oscar So White. There is the Hollywood Reporter did a series in which members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences wrote op eds about 
whether they were for or against the new changes that were happening. And, you know, you you wrote that you were, quote unquote, angry and ashamed. And you pointed out you made a valid point that because you haven't worked in feature films in a decade and that was going to be one of the changes in the rules was that if you haven't worked in 10 years and on on a feature film, then you would be booted from the Academy, I guess, or you wouldn't be eligible anymore. You would, yeah, you wouldn't be eligible to vote. Right. And so can you confirm whether or not you are no longer eligible? So um, they, they did walk back some of what they did, which did affect me personally. Okay. But my whole point was that I didn't think that they could really fix racism by employing ageism. Right. Um, not, I was not against in any way opening the doors to um, to, to more, you know, more diverse members, but I didn't feel that kicking people out simply because they got older, um, was the way to go. Right. And also that obviously probably disproportionately affects women in particular, because so often in Hollywood and in general throughout the, the, any industry, women and older women, as they get older, they tend to be less hireable. So that career, absolutely. There's no question that women's careers are shorter. And yes, that excellent point. Yeah. Even with that, though, and and obviously now you're, you're no longer directly affected, but even though it's it the way that they went about it was not necessarily or at least the way they originally went about it wasn't necessarily beneficial to everyone or it 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 sort of replaced one sort of discrimination with another one do you think Mm -hmm. at least do you feel now at least that it's a step in the right direction obviously the industry is where the change is really going to happen but at least this is the academy acknowledging it um yes but i i really think one even even opening up um as they did uh the doors to to a lot more women and a lot more people of color it's a drop in the bucket and i i really think that um pressure has to be put on networks and studios to start making changes in their in their hiring practices that's what's going to change everything i i honestly don't believe that academy members and i know a lot of them I think they try they try very hard to vote for whoever they think is best in a particular category and I I don't think they're racist and I don't think they're sexist and I really don't um but you can only pick from what's put in front of you and that has to that has to start to change. Mhm. And so I'd love to pivot a little bit because I, I just recently checked out one of your films, Straight Talk, from 1992. And uh-huh. <laughs> that movie, you, you teamed up again with Dolly Parton. And she she plays a woman named Shirley Kenyon. And she, at the beginning of the movie, loses her job for talking too much. <laughs> She's a, a dance teacher, actually. And she loses her job for talking too, too much to customers and comforting them. And then through a series of uh, funny happenings, she eventually lands herself as a talk show, a radio talk show advice person. So you stop sleeping with your wife. Isn't that what you're trying to say, bud? Well, I guess it is. Yes. So who are you fooling around with? It's not that. It's it's not that at all. I just um, lost interest in her. Yeah. And who are you fooling around with? A girl in my office. It's, it's, a, it's a really funny movie. And I noticed that I noticed another sort of common theme in that 
in straight talk in both nine to five and some of your other work is that there are moments in your movies where women are empowering other women and in a very direct way to either leave a man who is not treating them right or to, you know, try to get that promotion or whatever. There's a lot of female empowerment. Mm -hmm. My, my mother was an activist. I was raised in an activist household and an activist community. Um, I always say that, you know, other families used to go water skiing together or play tennis. We, we went to a protest. That was our family activity. And um, m- my mother and a number of her friends were very, very involved in the civil rights movement, um, which when I was very young in, in Florida was... Um, you know, it's amazing to me that this was in in my in my life. But we had segregated bathrooms. Um, Woolworths was segregated. The counter uh, there were segregated water fountains. And my mom and her friends, we were very tiny kids, would have us all. You know, we would be three or four, and they would always have us use. Um, excuse me for the word, this was the word on the door, colored, mm-hmm. the colored bathroom, the colored water fountain. Then after the civil rights, she was very involved in uh, the anti-Vietnam War um, protest. She was a draft counselor helping young men get out of going to the war if they if they didn't, you know, support it. So that's that's how I was raised. And it was and it was always from both my mother and my father, it was, uh, you know, Never a question of if you're going to college, it's what college are you going to and what are you going to do for a living. And there was never anything about depending upon a male. And also, it was very important to them that you always stand up. You always stand up for who's weaker uh, or who's being kicked on or bullied. So that that's how I was raised. Mm-hmm. One thing I do, did notice is that among your work, and part of this is probably just the nature of the business, is that you identify as a lesbian, uh, but a lot of your work does not center around lesbian na- narratives. And obviously, n- no one wants to be pigeonholed, just like we talked about with women only writing women's stories. But is that something right. you've ever wanted to explore? Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm I'm just getting ready to go pitch now um, a half hour of my own um, that's semi-autobiographical, um, so the lead will will be, you know, as I am a uh, single lesbian, sober alcoholic, Jewish mother, two so- children by donor insemination. <laughs> Spit that out quickly. Um, it has come up in, in bits and pieces here and there. Um, the play that I wrote for the BBC had two older women um, that were, um, it turned out, were a couple, which was kind of a big deal at the time. What was the name of that play? That was called Ladies in, Ladies in Waiting. Okay. And we had this ama- we had amazing, amazing cast. Annie Potts, Susan Terrell, Sally Kirkland, Ronnie Blakely, Elizabeth mm. Wilson. It was just like a, a cake hall, an amazing group of women. It was 17 women and, and one man. It was or 17 waitresses and a busboy. Um, very often the things that I've gotten it into, you, you know, you write so many things that get bought and don't get made. Everybody does. Mm-hmm. I think in my trunk, there's a number of things that deal with it. I adapted a book years ago for Wes Craven, oddly enough, that um, was based on a novel by a writer named Chris Bojalian that was way before its time. And it was about a woman who falls in love with her professor 
who is transitioning from male to female. Again, that, that didn't get done. And I sold a pilot to Showtime about eight years ago called Deborah Daddy about a um, transgender man and his family. Hmm. You know, some things get made and some things don't. So, of course, you cannibalize your own life. Yeah. My final question for you would be, if you can think of the last time you watched something created by someone else other than yourself and you felt as though you were represented on screen. It, it was something that spoke to you personally. Wow. I, I thought you were going to, I didn't know you were going to go for the personal. And I was like, <sighs> I thought you were going to say that you wished you did, or you wished you wrote. And I had this long <laughs> list of things that I've seen recently that I loved that I wish, you know. Well, you can give me that too, if you like. Well, I just finished watching the night of, which I thought was just brilliant on every level. Better call Saul. I'm I'm a huge fan of this English writer. I'm obsessed with her, named Sally Wainwright, who mm. wrote this um, uh, one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's an English detective show, um, really dark, called ironically Happy Valley. That's amazing. And then before that, she wrote this other um, sort of family drama comedy called um, Terrible Title: Last Tangle and Alice Hacks. That was that was genius, and that actually did have that did have a lesbian character that I thought was wonderful. So I'll go, yeah, uh, I'll I'll go with those. Cool, yeah, I I love 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 Better Call Saul. It's so so good. I'm. It's so good. Yeah. I'm very very late to the party. Um, I love Breaking Bad so much, and I don't know why it took me so long to get to Better Call Saul, but. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a huge gamble to do that show because when you have something so as great as Breaking Bad and then you try to do a, a prequel in a way to it, it's like, yeah. uh, I don't know, but I, it's pretty excellent. And I need to catch up with The Night Of, too. It's really extraordinary. Yeah. Jeannie Berlin should get an Emmy. I was happy to see her back. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Patricia. It was Once again, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. And I look forward to seeing what else you come up with in the as your career continues. Absolutely. Thank you. Hopefully it will continue. (laughs) Good talking to you. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That's all we've got today. It was a pleasure to have Patricia on. You can find links to the things we touched on in the show notes. And as always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Megaphone, Stitcher, or any other place you find your podcasts. Thanks so much to the folks who have rated us on iTunes since we launched a few months ago. If you are new to the show and are liking what you hear, please do let iTunes know. It's a huge help for the show, and we truly, truly appreciate it. Represent is produced by the lovely and awesome Verilyn Williams. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of Panoply. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Slate Represent. Music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And also, just on one final note, 
I want to implore everyone who's listening to please take care of yourselves. This election season has got a lot of us down and weary, and rightfully so. So do something that makes you happy. Until next time. 